The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So fortunately, we can take our time and be relating to our stretches and our movements with kindness and interest. That's that kind of what can show up for us when we're in the middle of a nine-day retreat is every moment becomes the most important thing. That's a nice telltale sign when uh, everything is interesting, not because it's somehow fundamentally interesting, but because of the presence of that wisdom and kindness. You know, then everything is interesting. Even seeing the sidewalk is interesting. Or hearing the blower, you know, that we would more, or the refrigerator even, you know, that we would normally be irritated by. This uh, aliveness of the present moment. So I want to continue... Somebody behind me. <laughs> I want to continue the talk from last night. And uh, just yeah, reflecting on how wisdom and metta, wisdom and compassion, can work together. And really appreciating that. And uh, in a way, I think, not stretching it too far, you know, they depend on each other. But I want to begin by connecting with what Shelley was talking about a couple nights back, the truth of dukkha, because this creates the right context for understanding wisdom and love. Because it's very easy to become idealistic um, in our practice. And so we always want to think about wisdom and love as being functional capacities that help us actually connect with this experience of being human, this moment's experience. So while near the end of the Buddha's life, he uh, was in the area of King Pasanadi, who was about his own age, so he was an older man too, and uh, the king came to visit the Buddha in the middle of the day, and the Buddha said to him, Well now, great king, where are you coming from in the middle of the day? (laughs) And I love this response. The king is being so transparent. He says, Just now, sir, I was engaged in the sort of royal affairs typical of head-anointed noble warrior kings, intoxicated with the intoxication of sovereignty, obsessed by greed for sensuality, who have attained stable control of their country and who rule having conquered a great sphere of territory on earth. So it's like, yeah, that's how it is (laughs) for us kingly types. (laughs) And I I mean, it's probably true, you know, that's, I, I mean, we see it being played out in all of the corridors of power, whether celebrities or politicians or whatever, you know, they 
just these great Greek tragedies in real time playing out in so many different spheres. And even in our own homes and our own workplaces, um, Shelley and I and a few other leaders from Common Ground, we took this wonderful workshop about a year ago on uh, the right use of power, I think is the, was the title, that there's a whole uh, system for nonprofits and religious organizations and other organizations uh, to learn about what power does to our mind, <laughs> you know, and it's like everything else, it is lawful, it is conditional, it can't be helped. If we're in a position where a lot of power is bestowed on us, we become changed with that power. And it will have its effect, just like if we are in a uh, lived situation where we were oppressed or taken advantage of, that's going to change us. It's going to affect us. And so the the important thing is to understand that everything is co-authoring. We don't get to say who we want to be. We're being co-authored, and we have to take responsibility for like what the circumstances, what my lived experience is drawing out of this sort of wide array of files back there, you know, different personality tendencies that might not come out unless I'm living in this kind of situation, and then they come out. And so the Buddha would probably give the response he's about to give to almost anybody, not just a king, dealing with greed and, you know, the issues that kings deal with. Intoxication (laughs) by power, right? But he says, what do you think, great king? So he gives him a simile. Imagine a trustworthy person, reliable person, were to come to you from the east and on arrival would say, sir, There is a great mountain as high as the clouds coming this way, crushing all living things in its path. And then, sure enough, somebody, a trustworthy person, would come from the west, from the north, from the south. They say the same thing. There's a a mountain range as high as the clouds, marching in your direction, crushing everything in its path. Please do what you think best. (laughs) And so the Buddha asked the king, you know, with the simile, so if such a peril were to arise, what would you do? What would you do? And the king had a good answer. He said, well, if that were the case, the only wise thing to do would be to practice, right? To do Dharma practice, to be present. Because when we're present, when we have that stability of present moment awareness, we're expressing right there in that moment of being present, we're expressing the wholesome quality of wisdom and love. Right? We're curious. We're letting the moment reveal itself. We're seeing what we maybe haven't seen. And we're kind. We're allowing. Yeah, sometimes it's like this. I'm not afraid. And uh, the Buddha liked his answer and said, exactly right. And then he tells the king, 
I inform you, great king. I announce to you, great king, aging and death are rolling in on you. When aging and death are rolling in on you, what should be done? And then he just repeats what the king had said to practice. And he goes on, you know, how your troops of elephants and your troops of cavalry and your troops of infantry and your wise ministers and your storehouse full of gold, it's not going to help, right? What will help is doing your practice. And, um, you know, of course, it's the hardest thing. The reason we need these noble friends of wisdom and compassion is because it's really hard. Ajahn Chah once described how hard it was. It's like the Buddha is telling you that uh, you have to split up with a friend you've known since your childhood, you know, or like a brother too, because these defilements are habits of fear or habits of greed or habits of hate or habits of disconnection or habits of conceit, you know, our habits of self-view, self-centeredness. These are like really close to us, very familiar, like a pair of jeans we've taken the time to break in and now they actually fit and they're soft and seem like they belong on our body, you know. Back in the day when the Levi's, you would buy them, you know, when I think about whatever it was, I had my first pair of Levi jeans, you know, back in the 60s maybe even. You know, they were so stiff when you'd get them. (laughs) The first thing you'd do is you'd wash them a number of times and they'd stain everything blue that was in the wash with them. You know, you'd shrink them down and then you'd wear them. Sometimes you'd wear them wet even and all these tricks. And um, so something so familiar and, and that's why it's really worth, you know, in these talks and in our practice these days, especially now that we're more in the middle of the retreat, to uh, take the time, just in little moments here and there, in your sits, in your walking times, in your daily activities, to take the time to really sense how wisdom and love, this way of relating that's really trustworthy, is in fact trustworthy. It may not be our habit, like our habit is to fall back into reactivity because it's juicier in some ways and it has a kind of intensity. You know, those when a lot of greed is present and when a lot of aversion is present, fear, we feel in a way enlivened by the greed, the hatred and the delusion. So we have to create a counterweight to that comfort we have with the defilements. And we have to train the mind in a sense, to taste what it's like to be relating with wisdom and kindness. First, we have to 
find moments where we're relating with wisdom and kindness. And then the next step is to really, it's almost like uh, that's what we mean by mindful awareness. It's that reflectiveness. So in a moment of relating skillfully, the reflectiveness that knows it's like this, it feels like this. It's healing like this. It's stabilizing like this. It's self-reinforcing like this. We have to feel the rightness of it because that's how it works. You know, back in the day, you know, the Buddha would often talk in martial terms because he was of that class. You know, his father was in that. I think what I've heard from historians that the class system in India at the time wasn't as... um, distinct and well-formed as we kind of think of it now being, or certainly in the last number of centuries being. But it was still there. I mean, there were these distinct classes of people, like there are in almost every society. And uh, so the Buddha's father, you know, he wasn't from the priestly class, the Brahmins, but from the warrior caste. So a lot of the language that's used is sort of this warrior language. But you know, it, it kind of fits because when the more we observe our mind, you know, the internal experience, but also the more we observe the external experience, it's all about power, isn't it? It's all about struggle. And in our mind, it's sort of, you know, it's not about good versus evil. But it is about sort of the dominance of how habit, habit energies are already there, have already momentum. And the thing about habit energies, they have their own coherence, their own intelligence, which keep them in motion. They're self-reinforcing in that way. So greed, because even though greed doesn't really deliver lasting happiness. It does deliver something, right? It strengthens a sense of self. It delivers a kind of energy, even though it's an agitated energy. It's enlivening in a a stressful way, but still there's energy there. So it has a way of feeding itself. Same with hate, aversion, fear, anxiety. So... These uh, defilements, it's not about hating them, but there is something that, uh, like, to understand clearly that they're not for my own well-being or for anybody's well-being. They're not benefiting anybody. The way that hate works in my heart, fear works in my heart, greed works in my heart, disconnection, numbness, closing down, fixations work in my heart. That's not for my well-being. That's not for anybody's well-being. We can have a really strong conviction, just like some of you I know have raised kids. And when you see a child in danger, there are moments when you clearly see this is not safe for that child to be doing. This is not okay. And I'm going to do whatever I can to stop them from harming themselves. And we have the same, we can have the same response when there's real 
clear wisdom and deep love, there's that same fierceness in terms of taking care of ourselves. Oh, honey, don't do that. We're not going to do that. And Buddhism, you know, some of you know this, we call it Hiri Otapa, this powerful force the Buddha calls them the guardians of the world. And it's this uh, powerful, uh, like, uh, felt sense of, oh yeah, I've been there, I've done that, I know it doesn't help, so we're not going to do that again. So you call that like a wise regret. Like, I know better, because I remember, <laughs> and I'm so glad I remember, because I don't have to do it again. And uh, you know how it is, like, some of you, you know, when we're on retreat especially, we can feel drawn into entanglements where we just spin in unproductive ways. And then we feel, you know, after 30 minutes of that or longer, we can feel really discombobulated, like the only thing I'm good for now is a nap, you know, and then we feel a little discombobulated after the nap and a little disoriented. So weirdly, we tend to go back to the drama because at least there's energy there. And then we need another nap. And then we can get really caught. Then we need caffeine, you know, which makes the next time we fall into that vortex of that drama all the more intense because now it's partly fueled by the caffeine. Then we're really exhausted. So we're, we need some other out, but we've taken too many naps. And we're not really sleepy. So we need fantasy. So then we'll start having fantasies that will just even seemingly Innocent fantasies, not about much at all, which is plant stuff, or like Shelley mentioned, reading the ingredients on shampoo bottles, or we'll just fill up space in one way or another, get obsessed about this or that, because we don't know what to do with ourselves. But as practitioners, we sort of now are beginning to know, well, we can always relate with wisdom and love to anything, either the drama at hand or some more neutral experience. And there's something much more satisfying and onward leading about relating to walking with wisdom and love or relating to sipping tea with wisdom and love. Or hopefully you felt it tonight at the beginning part of the guided set, just being with the inhalation and the exhalation. Like, like almost like we're strengthening those wholesome ways of relating, it's like a training ground. So with each breath, we're recognizing the quality of love that's right there, actively part of how the mind is connecting. And we're recognizing the quality of wisdom, the clear seeing, the interest, the humility that's right there in how the mind is knowing the in-breath and knowing the out-breath. And it actually makes it really interesting because the breath isn't interesting ever, really. I mean, it is it is what it is, but it's not like unusually an unusually interesting phenomenon. But the reason it's actually can be interesting is what we learn about the way of relating to the breath and how relating with superficiality really doesn't work. It's really unpleasant. Or relating with control, like 
I'm really going to make my mind stay with the breath. You know, we really see how that doesn't work, causes us to get a headache. But how getting interested in how the mind is relating, like what is the wholesome way, what is the beautiful way, what is the healing way to be with this experience of breathing in and the experience of breathing out. And then we moved and we were just aware of something more subtle, just the quality of the heart. And don't get too fixated on heart, meaning this pump here. It's kind of whatever you sense as the middle or the center, the feeling center. That's really what we can take up as a more subtle anchor. So first, just something, some ordinary physical process like breathing in, breathing out, or the body sitting, or obvious touch points. And then, actually, when we turn our attention to Vedana, feeling tone, that Shelley talked about this morning during the morning instructions, then that's where it's nice, you know, this really is the same as the mind, by the way, just so you know. I'm calling it a heart because it's important to bring in the felt sense as a counterweight to going into the cognitive part of the mind, you know, the thinking part. But there's this part of the mind that intuits, that feels, right? And we want to, that's a kind of a more grounded way to be with uh, what we might say in response to the question, how's the heart doing? How's the mind doing? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Are you okay? <laughs> you know? Where do we look when we say that? I mean, not in a kind of controlling way, like, how are you feeling? But just in a really kind way, where does the attention go? Like, how am I doing right now? Do I feel safe now? Or feel at ease? Where do we look when we ask a question like that? That's the heart, the mind, right? So keeping that in mind, and, and a lot of times when we're keeping that in mind, in order to study how wisdom and love can support this intimacy, this deepening, keeping something subtle in mind, and how it can be, it kind of give our practice some immunity from being controlling, or being bored, or being superficial, right? Because wisdom and love are inherent, inherently interesting because they have flavors of freedom. When we're loving in that authentic way, we're feeling the freedom from the oppressive quality of aversion and fear. And when we're feeling wise, we're feeling the freedom from the oppressiveness of fixed views. Because when we're really wise, then the mind is open. It's not fixed. Another thing I wanted to read tonight, um, and this is, uh, and remember your Google Doc, uh, people on, at the retreat center, you might have forgotten it because you're not on your computer, but Robin sent you all a Google Doc with all the links, uh, the Zoom links, but also some links for some documents. And what I'm going to read now from Ajahn Sushito, this wonderful Western monk, um, it's 
the uh, article that this is from is one of those links. And by the way, somebody asked earlier about the metta instructions. And there are two documents that I wrote a long time ago about metta practice that are also there for people who want more instruction. So you can take a look at that Google Doc when you get a chance. But the article is uh, Original Openness. It's kind of a nice article title, huh? And um, what I want to talk about a little bit before we end tonight is uh, like it's nice for us to feel empowered to understand wisdom and love as one thing. You know, we a lot of times we break things down in order to understand something as a whole. You know, like we might take apart a car and put it back together and then we, we have a different understanding of that car having taken it apart. So, you know, what we call relating wisely or relating kindly, you know, it, it can be nice to distinguish. Well, because the, there's always going to be wisdom. When there's real compassion, there's always going to be wisdom. Because wisdom is what keeps compassion from turning into pity or something that might on the surface look like compassion, but it's still controlling or fear-based. And compassion is what helps wisdom not be superficial. You know, because deep wisdom depends on intimacy. There's no wisdom of non-attachment without total exposure. It's like somebody would come to us and say, hey, you know what, I'm not attached. Well, the first thing I'm going to want to know is, well, what kind of life have you been living? You know, have you been extremely privileged? Because your non-attachment may be more about having everything you've ever wanted than actually a heart that isn't dependent on anything. So real wisdom depends on exposure. Like, can we be free of clinging right in the middle of the mess? And... uh the way wisdom supports compassion is um, can we be in that place of including um, and responding but but really see that it's nature doing nature's work. It's not somebody who has a problem with someone's suffering, so I'm going to help. You know, it's a, it's a movement of love. It's a movement of generosity. I'm not averse to people suffering. That's what we think. Often that's the mistaken view of compassion. It's like the world's a mess and it's really bothering me, so let's get together and fix it. I'm not saying that <clears throat> that's not okay. I'm just saying there may be something more beautiful and healing than just being averse to the messiness or the, the meanness of the world. So anyway, let me just finish the evening by reading this passage from Ajahn Sushito's article on original openness. He writes, Openness, then, is a careful practice rather than an ideology that consists, that insists on openness to all people at all times. 
And isn't that what we want to do? You know, we kind of want to make a dogma of openness. And then you'll organize a competing Dharma center called Openness Meditation Center. (laughs) Right? And he writes, misplaced faith and openness or trust that isn't backed up by a mindful assessment of what you are putting your faith in is subject to being abused. What is always skillful, however, is to be open to yourself about what's happening to you in the here and now and checking it out in your body and heart. Maybe there was a threat, but it's past. Maybe you've reached the edge of your capacity to be open and accepting of another, then something has to be said to let them know that. Thus you replace a pathology with wise navigation. This wise openness naturally supports application energy. That's a funny word, but it it connects with some Buddhist terminology. It's really about this appropriate response and it needing to be moment by moment, not some plan. And that's why openness as a term for wisdom and compassion is really useful because it's uh, it's always going to support that appropriate responding because that's where appropriate responding comes from, that exposure, that vulnerability, that humility, that connection, moment by moment. But that's how you wake up. Life is most alive when you can be present at the edge of the unknown. And if there's one way in which the property of the deathless awakening can be experienced right now, it's in the ability to be living free of the heart's contraction of fear, depression, and holding on that comes with the loss of the known. Yeah, so this is another place like wisdom and love, wisdom and compassion is sort of perfectly designed to help the the heart be at ease when we're in those edgy places. Because the the metta, the compassion, really creates a kind of ground. This belongs. This isn't a mistake. I don't have to be afraid. And the wisdom is interested, like interested in how the mind gets caught, how the mind wants to push away or destroy or own or whatever. Death, separation, uncertainty, they're all part of life. The Buddhist teachings is that we have the original potential to handle and in fact blossom in the face of these. We don't have to feel threatened, anxious, needy, or inadequate. With wise openness, the main causes and conditions for human misery cease. The gates to the good life are open. It's only because we place so much emphasis on trying to know what can't be known, such as the future, and how other people that we're close, uh, and how other people are that we close them. But when all is uncertain, all is possible. In such a light, wise openness is the most obvious faculty to develop because the unknown is right here within us and around us. So let's just leave it here. Take a moment, let go of the words. 
And thanks for listening, everyone. We have about 25 minutes for walking practice. Hopefully you'll join in for the 8.30 set and some chanting. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, w Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.